Good morning. morning. Well, I'm glad to be back. Uh, Two weeks ago, I was at uh, Lynchburg, Virginia, Liberty University campus for an AACC event and did a couple of presentations there. Very well received. As you know, our ministry has got a a very nice reputation with the the crew that comes there, and they came and and got many of our free resources and very positive uh, feedback from those two programs. I did the Developing Brain and God in Your Brain, How Your View of God Changed Your Brain. Very well received. And then last week, I was at Post Falls, Idaho, at Summit Northwest Ministries. I want to say hi to our new friends at Post Falls. And they have a really wonderful ministry out there. They've taken an old six-theater movie complex, and they've gutted the inside and redone the whole inside, and, and they've made the, the a sanctuary and a worship center, but also kind of a, they're making it kind of almost like a working toward a community center uh, where people can come and hang out and do things, and they're doing a lot in their community. And I just thought it had a very, very positive, loving, interested in others' energy there. It was a great, great experience. And uh, for those of you who follow our Facebook page, you'll notice that Francesca put up a little teaser picture this week with some things being loaded, unloaded at our warehouse, uh, asking people to guess what, what's going on there. And uh, what's going on is, well, the second edition of The Remedy is now uh, here, and you'll notice it looks different than the first edition. First edition, this edition was free. We gave away 10,000 of these. And just a little history about how this came to be. It's 2003, 2004. I was at Loma Linda, Brad and Dorothy Cole's home, neurologist out there. And we were having the first planning meetings for something called the, the Good News Tour. Anybody remember the Good News Tour? And in the first planning meetings, we were talking about this picture of God as creator, designer, healer, restorer, and how this other view of God is, uh, that is often taught as God is a dictator, punisher, judge, um, is, uh, is so commonly viewed. And it was brought up that, well, you know, there's this artifact in the translations, that all the translations have been done after Constantine converted and after the premise that God's law functions like human law. And so when the, when the translators went to translate, they would legitimately and honestly see a, a legal problem when there really wasn't any. And if you don't get what I mean by that, think if I were to say, <clears throat> you know, I have a frog in my throat, and now somebody's going to translate that into another language. They could translate, I have a lump in my throat. I have a tumor in my throat. I have a phlegm in my throat. I have an amphibian in my throat. Okay? I mean, they have to choose, don't they? And, and, it can, and potentially it could mean any of those things. And so when you do translations, there's, you know, one word, the word law. Does it mean rules? Does it mean principles like law of gravity? If you're translating justify in another language, does it mean some legal accountability, which is often what's happened in English in our Bible? Or does it mean... When you have your word processor and you justify the margins, it simply means putting what's out of order in order, setting things right. But if you're translating it, you have to interpret. Justify, does it mean this or does it mean that? And so what's happened in the translations, because they went to it with the assumption that God's law works like our law, system of rules that requires the judge to examine guilt or innocence, whose uh, penalties must be enforced or else we have no justice, and therefore, uh, has anybody accepted Jesus' payment for our legal debt or not, and this idea was accepted, so when they translated the Bible, they they artificially wove in a lot of this legal language. So the remedy purposely comes at it as God is designer. His laws are the protocols upon which life are constructed to operate, and God is working to heal and restore human beings who are out of harmony, dead in trespasses, and have a terminal condition of character. And through Jesus, Jesus is the remedy that fixes what's wrong with us. Now, that was the, uh, when we first did this, there was some concern. Well, you know what? People really don't like when you mess with the scripture. New translations and paraphrases. Can, and, uh, and so uh, we did 10,000 and put them out there for free to get feedback. Let people tell us what they think. And they've been out for about two years now, and the feedback has been overwhelmingly positive. Really, there's been no negative or critical feedback at all. And um, by the way, does anybody not have one that would like one? Well, there you can have this one. Okay, this is the last of the free ones, I think, that we have. These now are available on Amazon. If anybody's interested, you can uh, get these available on Amazon. And bulk orders, just contact our ministry, and there's a discounted further pricing for bulk orders. But the difference between this edition and that edition is not only we get feedback, but there is over a thousand new edits that we edited. And so this is a much cleaner edited copy than the, uh, than the first edition. Let's go ahead and begin class now with prayer for the announcements.
Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your love, for your mercy, for your grace, for the truth of, of who you are as Jesus has revealed to us and all that he's accomplished in our behalf. We ask that your spirit of truth and your spirit of love will join us this morning, enlighten our minds, transform our hearts, and we will draw into the fellowship of love that you've provided for us. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we're doing lesson number nine uh, in the quarterly Feed My Sheep, First and Second Peter, uh, titled, Be Who You Are. And the memory verse comes from Second Peter 1, 5 through 7. And it reads as follows. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to, your, and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and mutual affection love. What's being described? Growth. Growth. Oh, I like that. Growth. A progression. So let, let's look at the very first thing he says. What does Peter mean by faith? Add to your faith. Does he mean a religion? You know how people are uh, a member of a certain faith? Is that what he's talking about? No, he's not talking about a religion. What's he talking about when he says add to your faith? Trust in God. Yeah. He's talking about a personal trust. Now, and I, you already said it, trust in God. Because can people have faith in things other than God? So you, you've already defined it, but I wanted to point that out. It's not just faith. It's a specific faith in a specific being he's really referring to here, isn't he? How do we get this faith? Were you ever taught that every person is given a measure of faith? Were you ever taught that? This is, a, I think, probably from Romans 12, 3, out of the King James Version. I'll read it to you out of the King James. It says this. For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. Does this mean that every person is given faith in God? See, this mystified me. I mean, even as a kid, before I started studying these things, if every person is given by God faith in God, then how come everybody doesn't believe in God? That never made sense to me. So I questioned it. You have to exercise your faith. Well, here's the same verse from the NIV. See if you get the same meaning. For by grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think more highly of yourself than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Does that say the same thing, that every person is given a measure of faith? Or that the measure of faith you've received by God, it should enlighten your... Or here's the Good News translation. And because of God's gracious gift to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you should. Instead, be modest in your thinking and judge yourself according to the amount of faith that God has given you. Does that say every person is given a measure of faith? It doesn't say that at all. The text is not saying that God gives every person faith by some supernatural outflow of divine energy downloading into their individuality a sense of, I now have faith in God. That's not what it's saying. It's speaking to those who have faith in God that that faith allows our understanding to grow so that we recognize all of the blessings we have come from God. We don't think arrogantly that we deserve or we're better than. That our faith in him causes us to realize that it all comes from him and we give him the glory. So what's the difference between when some people have it and some people don't? You know, like you believe there is a God and you want a relationship with him and some people have nothing to do with him. That's right. Well, you're already observing in the real world around you. Have you observed in life there are some people who believe in God and some people who don't? Okay. So that would tell you everyone doesn't have faith. Okay, so the next question is, when, then where does the faith come from? Romans 10, 17, see if this helps, helps us examine your question. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing the word, or the message, or the gospel, and the gospel or the message comes from hearing the word of Christ. <clears throat> so what do you understand? Where, do, where does faith now come? From God. From God? How? What's his method for helping us establish faith? All right, let's move away from God for a minute. Do you have faith in any person? What's another word for faith? Trust. Do you have trust in any person? Is there anybody in this world you trust? How was it you came to trust that person? 
Oh, getting to know them. Ah, okay. So, what does this mean then? Faith comes from hearing the message of the gospel. What is the message of the gospel? The word of God. But what's the word of God primarily about? The truth of who God is. And so as we come to the truth, the gospel, the good news of God is revealed in Jesus, and we see and experience him for ourselves. That establishes our faith or our confidence in him. So why do some have it and some don't? What would be the reason some would have a faith in God and some wouldn't? Because they choose to have that relationship or that knowledge or that understanding. Or they haven't encountered the evidence. Oh, okay. Did you hear that? So some people have, have had truth presented to them in ways that, that are compelling and meaningful and they choose to respond to it and open. Are there people who've never had the gospel brought? Yes. Are there people who've had a false gospel brought, a false picture of God taught to them? Yes. And if we get a false picture of God, a God who is wrathful, punitive, vindictive, arbitrary, if that's the picture of God somebody has taught us, should we trust a God like that? So if people reject God and say, I don't believe in God, first thing you know I ask them is, tell me about the God you don't believe in. And as they describe him to me, I've been able to say, well, good for you, because I don't believe in him either. That's not the true God. But if God gave everybody a measure of faith, it'd be almost like he was forcing himself on people. He doesn't do that. That's right. So that's how that old King James language never meant that. It's our modern reading of King James. Back to the King James, back in 1611, they read that and understood what we read, understand the modern ones to say. That as we have faith, our faith enlightens us to the reality of God and our dependence upon him and all our blessings come from him. And the more faith we have, the more... Um, all and admiration we have for him. That's what it's really saying. But in our modern English, when we read the old King James, we draw sometimes in- inappropriate conclusions that were never meant. Well, sometimes, yeah. too, even the apostles had different levels of faith at different times. Look at Thomas doubted Jesus' resurrection. That's right. And certainly Peter on the water had some doubts. And this is a great one. And how was it that Thomas's faith was established at that point? Was it by hearing the word? Did Jesus now start quoting Old Testament scriptures to him and say, now based on these scriptures, have faith? What, what was it that establishes faith? What did Jesus himself tell Thomas to do? Experience. Experience. It was his experience with him that his faith was based upon. And so you'll find, remember the three threads that we talk about in here? What are the three threads that God gives us to establish our faith? Scripture. Experience. Experience. What's the third thread? Science. Science and nature. Romans chapter 120. God's divine nature is seen in what he has made so that men are without excuse. Three threads. Yes. I have a question. How do we explain that faith is the substance of things hoped for and evidence of things not seen? Here we're talking about faith in relation to having a relationship with God and how does that verse explain things? This is a great question. So in the Greek New Testament, the word translated substance comes from the Greek word hypostasis. The first half is hypo, as in hypoglycemia, hypotension. It means low or under. The last half, stasis, means standing, was translated into the Latin as substance. Based on substance. Sub as in submarine, subterranean, subway means under, and substance, stance, means standing. So translated into the English, faith is our understanding of things hoped for, evidence of things not seen. And understanding has two meanings. When we have an understanding, we have a comprehension of how it works. And in relationship with somebody, we can say, okay, now do we have an understanding? Okay, and it means both. It means we have an understanding of who God is, and we have an understanding with God. And what's the understanding with God? That I'm a sinner who can't save himself, and you sent Jesus to do what I can't. And I understand if I surrender to you, you'll fix, fix what's broken in me. I trust you because you've revealed yourself to be trustworthy and I trust you to fix what I can't fix. That's our understanding. That's our faith. And, and then the things we, we, we don't see. If your child comes home from school and while their child was at school, you bought them a present and put it in the closet and you told your child to go to the closet to get the present, would your child go? Mm-hmm. Yes. Do they have any physical evidence or substance of the present? No. They, they don't. But do they have evidence of your trustworthiness and your reliability? Okay, the presence in our closet, crown of glory, new heaven, new earth, life eternal. These are the presence in the closet we have no physical evidence or substance for. They're the promises. 
But do we have overwhelming evidence of the existence of God and his reliability and trustworthiness? So our faith is based on the evidence of God's existence, his trustworthiness, and the substance or our understanding is that he will do what he has said because he's proven himself trustworthy. But the things that we have not yet seen are the things to come. And and our, our confidence or faith isn't in them. They're the presence. Our confidence is in the one who's promised the presence. Does that help? So faith comes from the evidence God has provided primarily, well, through all these evidence, but the core, the, 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 the pinnacle of all evidences of evidences is Jesus Christ. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I have one. John 17, he prays that, first he says, life eternal is that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ who now sent. But he says, I finished the work you've given me to do. I have made you known. I revealed you. Why did he need to reveal him? Because people didn't understand He'd been obscured. He'd been obscured. People didn't really know him. There's a lot of distortions about him. And what happens when we accept distortions about God? Does the Bible tell us, if you have a false God concept, is there a problem there? (laughs) Romans chapter 1, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They preferred images made to their own hands to the knowledge of God, and their minds became depraved and darkened and futile. This goes back to the God-shaped brain book, or the talk talk I did two weekends ago. Our view of God actually changes us. You hold distorted views... This is one of design laws, law of worship. By beholding, we become changed. We become like the God we worship. We worship a false God construct. It degrades us. Only in worshiping the true God do we advance and develop in the pathways God himself has designed for us to advance. That's why he calls us to have no other gods before him. Because on planet Earth, we're the highest created beings on Earth. There's nothing on Earth we can worship that will cause us to grow. Anything on Earth we worship degrades us. Only in worshiping him do we grow. This is design law. So what about knowledge? What kind of knowledge? So faith, we want to add to our faith, our trust, we want to add knowledge. What kind of knowledge? Is it talking about going to seminary and getting a degree in theology? Is that what it's talking about? Can you have a seminary degree and not know God? How about the people who demanded the crucifixion of Christ? In their culture, weren't they the ones with the seminary degrees? Yeah. So this is not the knowledge he's talking about to get an academic degree. What, what knowledge is he talking about? Knowledge of who God is. And how do we get that knowledge? From having a relationship with him, from reading his word. So when Jesus said, life eternal is that might know you, the only true God, he wasn't talking know about See, we can study the life of Abraham Lincoln. We can know where he was born. We can know all his achievements. We can read the things he's written, the Gettysburg Address. And Does that mean we know Abraham Lincoln? No. Many people study God like that. They study the facts. They study the history. But they never come to a personal knowledge and experience with God. And so in the Bible, the word know, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave a son. Very intimate. Or I like the one, really, I like the one about David when he was old. He, he had trouble keeping himself warm in bed at night. And so they brought a young woman with high metabolism to sleep with him. Yes, they did. I know, but I don't like that one. Yes. You don't like that story, huh? But it says, it says right in the scripture, right there. It kept, it kept him warm at night. It says right in the scripture, he never knew her. Does that mean they were not introduced? No, no. <laughs> no, it means they didn't have the intimate physical relationship of a marriage partnership, okay? That, that, that knowing in Scripture is an intimate connection with. This is what life eternal is, coming into intimacy with God. So consider this historic quote from one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and see what you think about, about this. Experience is said to be the best teacher, Genuine experience is indeed superior to theoretical knowledge. And and put that into... Do you understand the genuine experience, theoretical knowledge? You can study swimming and all the mechanics of it and the energy and the output from kicking so many... The whole thing. But that's different from getting in the water and actually swimming. Isn't it? Yeah. So genuine experience is indeed superior to theoretical knowledge. But many have an erroneous idea of what constitutes experience. Real experience is gained by a variety of careful experiments made with the mind free from prejudice, uncontrolled by previous established opinions and habits. In other words, we don't go to the scripture with a belief system already in place and demand that the scripture fit what we think it should tell us. 
The results are marked with careful solicitude and an anxious desire to learn, to improve, and to reform in every point that is not in harmony with physical and moral laws. Physical laws. Hmm. Listen to this next paragraph. I love this. That which may many term experience is not experience at all. It has resulted from mere habit or from a course of indulgence, thoughtlessly and oftenly ignorantly followed. There has not been a fair trial by actual experiment through invest and thorough investigation with a knowledge of the principles involved in the action. Now, Russell, listen to this because you're going to love this experience, which is opposed to natural law, which is in conflict with unchangeable principles of nature is not to be relied upon. Experience, which is opposed to natural law, which is in conflict with the unchangeable principles of nature is not to be relied upon. Superstition arising from a diseased imagination is often arrayed in opposition to reason and to scientific principles. To many a person, the idea of that others may gainsay what he has learned by experience seems folly and even cruelty itself. But there are more errors received and held through false ideas of experience than from any other cause. Experience. And this is what you'll hear lots of. Well, my experience, I prayed and I experienced this. You can't challenge my experience. Okay. She's telling us to apply the rules of science. The rules of science. Our experiences. Which are evidence-based, reproducible, testable, because God is the creator. His laws are evidence-based. They're the laws upon which rea- the fabric of reality exists, not just the physical laws of physics and laws of gravity and laws of health, but the moral laws as well. For instance, if a man cheats on his spouse, which is breaking the law of love, can you predict what will happen in the man and in the marriage? Can you predict it? Will he have more peace? Will he have more joy? Will he have more higher self-esteem? Or will he have more stress, more guilt, more anxiety, more worry, more dread? Will the relationship get closer? Or will there be a fracturing in the relationship? What will happen if he's cheating on his spouse? You can predict. How many can predict what will happen if I let go of this? How many? All of you? Do you guys have the gift of prophecy? This is a future event. It hasn't happened yet. How can you predict these things so, so, so confidently? When you understand the laws of God, you can, under, you can predict what will happen in harmony or in deviation of those laws. Okay? This is what scientific approach to understanding our, our God and how he's created our beings to operate. So, if we refuse to, to do this, it says... If we refuse to add a real knowledge of God, the creator God who builds reality, this particular author was suggesting we create superstitious beliefs. Superstitious beliefs. False views of God that damage the mind and obstruct healing. Can you think of any teachings in Christianity that deny design law? I'll start with an easy one. Transubstantiation. Transubstantiation is the teaching in Catholicism that when they take the communion wafer and swallow it once it passes the soft palate and enters the esophagus the wheat and the sugar and the salt turn into the literal human flesh of jesus christ this is a teaching still taught in catholicism today that's superstition it denies scientific reality They've actually done studies now because we have these little pill capsules that you can swallow that there's a camera that will send a picture to, uh, you know, your GI doctor can do this. They can put a little pill in your mouth that has a camera on it and sends a signal and they can actually uh, watch on a screen what's happening inside your GI system now. And they've done this. People who've gone had this little pill inside and and the camera's monitoring and they swallow and guess what comes down into the stomach? A wafer of carbohydrate, flour, okay, sugar and salt, Okay. Not physical human flesh. This is superstition. How about this one? If you forget to confess some sin, you will not be able to enter heaven because that sin will still have to be punished. That's just a lie. Superstition. I remember a person that I know who was having a heart attack. And uh, he actually had a heart attack. His heart stopped and they defibrillated him three times. He survived, obviously, because I had a conversation with him. But he says he remembers being in the ER and he remembers coming in and out of consciousness. He understood every time he woke up, they defibrillated, his heart started again. He woke up and he understood his circumstance. He understood he was hanging between life and death. And he said, I had only one thought in my mind, one thought. I hope there isn't some sin I forgot to confess that will keep me out of heaven. This is superstition. 
And this would be like, to understand this would be an imposed law. See, he's operating under imposed law, which is the lie, rather than design law. This would be like a, a person with cancer who had smoked their whole life and gets treatment for the cancer, and the cancer goes into remission, and they're now cancer-free, forgetting to tell the doctor that one time they chewed tobacco. They never mentioned that to the doctor, and so the doctor now must kill them for that. You see? It is ridiculous. It has no bearing. It's the condition of the heart. Have they been healed, renewed, to be Christ-like? Not have they had perfect memory and had legal accountability for every misdeed. It's important to also uh, reemphasize that they are uh, oftentimes very sincerely well-intended, simply misguided and misunderstand, uh, misunderstood something in the past. So Yes, believing a lie, however well-intentioned, does not bring healing. I have one patient who believes that cigarette smoke helps her lungs work better. And she's quite sincere in that belief. But it doesn't really work. Her lungs are not getting better. If you confess your sins, here's another one. If you confess your sins, they get erased from the record books in heaven. This would be like saying, when you get a disease and you go get treatment from your doctor and the disease is eradicated from your body, after it's gone from your body and you're well, they erase all your medical records. And you also then go to some place, get a treatment on your brain and your memory gets erased and you have no memory of ever been sick. Because this is what's commonly taught in Christianity, that when we confess our sins, they're not only erased out of the record books, in the hereafter, there's no memory of our sin. They're erased from history. Do you understand a problem? This is superstition. This is not reality. Jesus said to Simon at the feast, when Mary anointed his feet with the oil, and they were criticizing, he said to Simon, those who are forgiven much, love much. We're also told, and, and you understand the implication of that. If you had a child dying of cancer, and some doctor, everybody's told you there's nothing to do. They're terminal. There's nothing. No, and at the last minute before your child dies, a new doctor walks in, gives them a treatment, maybe like Jesus in the miracles, and that child is restored to perfect health. Do you appreciate that doctor? Do you, have, do you thank him? What happens if tomorrow you have complete memory erasure, you didn't know your child was sick, and you don't remember what the doctor did? Does your value and appreciation go up or down? This idea that it's erased from our memory undermines our love for God. Not only that, it denies the rest of Scripture because in the hereafter, Revelation tells us that the saved sing a song of their experience. How do you sing a song of your experience if you don't remember what it was? Superstition. Why, did, why, why does that superstition come? Because of the false law construct. Because they believe if there's any records that remain, God can't look upon sin and still love us. Or other people, if they knew what we've done, they would hate us. And, and, and we live in fear of what people will think of us if they know what we've done on this earth. How about this? Baptism by water cleanses you from sin. Does baptism by water cleanse you from sin? Baptism by the Spirit, immersing your heart and mind by the Spirit, which the water is a symbol of, cleanses you from sin. What about sacrificing animals in the Old Testament cleanses people from sin? That's superstition. Sacrifice in the Old Testament was symbolic of the sacrifice of Christ and his accomplishments, which, when internalized, cleanses from sin. How about keeping feast days as necessary for salvation? superstition. Keeping feast days were never necessary for salvation, even in Old Testament times. Think about the people in Old Testament times who didn't do any of the feast days. Or even in the time of Christ. You know, Naaman, Nebuchadnezzar. There are people in the Old Testament. The, the, the Shunammite widow whose child was raised and, and housed Elijah. Okay, all these people. If a person dies and doesn't get last rites by a priest, their soul will not go to heaven. Superstition. If a person is not buried on holy church ground, they cannot go to heaven. Superstition. Is that really one? Yes. I've heard it. Oh, yes. That's why people in Catholicism, if they commit suicide, at least historically, they wouldn't let them be buried on church ground, and they worried that their loved ones were either in purgatory or hell for all eternity. This is how they controlled the masses. Yes. I was just in Florence, Italy, and the cemetery for the Christians was a separate little round entity, and, and that was outside the city walls. When the city grew, all of a sudden now, the cemetery for the Christians, which weren't allowed, 
was down inside the city walls. So they put a wall around it and then moved the new cemetery outside the city walls. <laughs> so they were still outside the city. Yeah, there you go. Superstition. That's superstitious too. Exactly. There's a lot of things, and it all comes back from operating on imposed law rather than design law. What about the Sabbath as an arbitrary test of obedience? Is that superstition or is that just... That's superstition. That's superstition as well. If you believe that, well, you have to keep the Sabbath in a certain way, and if you don't keep it in a certain way, then you'll be condemned. This is all superstition as well. It's not real. That doesn't mean there isn't a Sabbath in the Bible. There's clearly a Sabbath in the Bible. Uh, memory text says, without correct knowledge and or experience, we cannot progress to the next element, which is self-control. How many people fail to de- develop as Christians? You look into their life, they fail to develop that fruit of the Spirit called self-governance or self-control, referred to in Galatians. Could it have something to do with their false experience, which is based on a false belief in God, which incites fear and undermines trust? This is why they have no self-control. Did you all follow that? See, if we have a false belief in God and we remain afraid of him, it doesn't engender the regeneration of love in the heart. Fear and love are inversely proportional. Perfect love casts out fear. So many Christians I know have belief, but they remain afraid. Yes, somebody online? How do you explain miracles? They seem to defy science, and many people think biblical miracles are superstition. So if we went back in time today with a laser show, a hologram that we could project with our technology, what would they think was happening? If somebody today went back and got LASIK surgery, cataract removal, what would they, what would they call that back 2,000 years ago? Witchcraft. A miracle. Witchcraft. Even a cigarette lighter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What about uh, any of our technologies? How about, you know, I've, did, I've done this one before. Hey Siri, what's the weather today? temperature will range from 51 degrees to 73 degrees. Now, if I said that to a little device, what would happen 2,000 years ago? (laughs) Okay? I mean, you know, so miracles, miracles are God working as the creator, designer, builder of space-time energy reality through his avenues and mechanisms and pathways that the creator knows that we can't even comprehend yet to achieve things beyond our comprehension. That's what's going on, and we will understand more when, when that time comes. Now, these virtues in the Bible text for today culminate with mutual affection and then love. What is the difference between mutual affection and love? Now, I want to unpack this. Now, it can probably be nuanced in several ways, so the way I'm going to unpack it, I'm not going to say is the exclusive and only way to nuance the difference between mutual affection and love, but I think this is an important one to notice. Did anyone see the movie The Miracle Worker about Helen Keller? Anyone ever see that movie? Okay. Do you remember Helen Keller, how she behaved before Annie Sullivan came into her life? For those who didn't see it, she was deaf, dumb, and blind. And in her home, when they would serve serve food, she could still smell. And she could feel vibration. Okay. And so when they would serve food on the table, the family would sit at the table, and Helen would go around and stick her hands into the plates of food and just grab whatever she wanted with her hands off of anybody's plate around the table and stuff it in her mouth. Okay, No self-governance, just almost like a wild animal she was living. Helen's mother is depicted in the movie as having incredible compassion and affection and love and sympathy for, for Helen, and she couldn't bear to add more pain and suffering to this poor child who can't you know, see or hear or speak. And so she never sets any boundaries or any accountability with this child at all. Annie Sullivan comes along and begins to want to teach her. And the first thing she has to do is set some boundaries with her, which Helen has never had. She's maybe 10, 11, 12 years old by now. And so there's a fight that ensues, and and Helen's mother can't stand it and wants to intervene and put a stop to it. And so Annie has to take her away from the mother to an isolated place where they do battle, if you've seen the movie. And she's trying to get her to use a, a fork for eating rather than use her hands. And it's fork, throw it away, fork, throw it away, fork, throw it away. Probably a hundred of them. And then Helen slaps Annie and Annie slaps her back. <laughs> okay? And this goes on and on and on. But eventually, if you know the true story, she learns self-discipline. And then she learns sign language. And she eventually goes to college and gets a degree. Now, I tell you the story because did Helen's mother 
have affection for Helen. Yes, she absolutely did. She had deep affection for her. But who showed her more love? Andy Sullivan showed her more love. And this is the difference. Love, love is not simply affection or compassion or a, a warm regard. Love is an action that seeks to do what's in the best interest of the other person, even if it hurts you. It's self-sacrificial, even if it doesn't feel good. So most parents in here have done it on this regard. How many parents took their kids to get vaccines when the kids were small? Yeah. Did you enjoy it? Was it fun? Did it feel good for you? Why did you do it then? Even if the child uh, didn't understand and cried, it was uncomfortable. Why did you do something like that? Because you knew it was good. It was an act of love to do it for him. This is what love does. Love does what's best in governance of self, in the interest of others, even if it's uncomfortable for you to do it. And you see God in the Old Testament doing this over and over and over again. So how do we apply this in our lives today? Well, my life, where I, I often see this, is I get call from people outside my community asking if, in psychiatric crisis, or when I'm, almost every time I travel somewhere, if there's not an announcement made that Dr. Jennings is not here to be your personal psychiatrist, <laughs> if that announcement isn't made, somebody inevitably will come up to me and want me, after telling me two to three minutes of a problem, want me to tell them how to fix it. <laughs> you know, my, I, I've struggled with depression my whole life. My doctor's tried me on seven medicines. I don't know what to do. What should I do, doctor? <laughs> tell me what to do. Now, what's an act of love? Give them some specific medical guidance? Is that an act of love? Or to say, no, I can't. I can't for a variety of reasons. I, I don't have time to take a detailed history to actually know all the background of what's going on with them, why they're depressed, why they're struggling, what they've been through, the risk. I also don't have the opportunity to follow up with them and be there for them if there is a problem or a complication. It would, it would potentially cause significant misunderstanding and harm for me to offer them some specific medical guidance other than talk to your doctor. I can't help you with that. But what do I risk every time I do that? I risk them thinking I'm uncaring, mean-spirited, unloving, unkind, because I'm not willing to give them guidance. Yes? But how you say it matters a great deal. Yes, how you say it matters a great deal. That's true. And so I always try to smile and, and explain to them I'd, I'd like to be able to help them. And, and so when I, when I try it, and, and here's, the, here's what you go. You know, I'd like, but I can't tell you that without actually having time in a few minutes. And they go, well, we can go sit down right now. <laughs> they do. That's what they'll say. Well, can, this afternoon, can, can you take two hours with me this afternoon? <laughs> I'm there doing a seminar. 300, 400, 500 people there to hear the programs. Should I cancel the programs and go sit with that person for two or three hours? And even if I did, for those of you who don't know, know medicine, I'm not licensed in their states, so can I do that anyway, legally? No, I can't. <laughs> And even if I did and gave them some, some guidance, am I there to follow up with them? Can you, how many think you can resolve most psychiatric problems with one visit? It's not, it's not going to happen. And yet their insistence is almost diagnostic. <laughs> there is that. Right. So I say no. And I try to say no in a, in a gracious way, but I have learned uh, that it's often helpful to talk to the pastor and he makes an announcement ahead of time to not do that to me. And that, that seems to work the best. Sunday's lesson, 2 Peter 1, 1 through 4, uh, and it reads as follows. Simon Peter, servant of apostle of Jesus Christ, to those through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. And then the second paragraph says, Peter emphasizes that the divine power of Jesus has given to us everything that concerns life and godliness. Only through the power of God do we even exist, and only through his power can we attain holiness. And this divine power is given to us through a knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. So, 
When you think of the divine power, that's what I want to focus on, the divine power, what comes to mind? Does any other Bible text pop into your head? Divine power. How about 2 Corinthians 10, 3 5? We're in a war, war in the world, but we don't use worldly weapons. Our weapons have power. Divine power to demolish strongholds, and we demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against. What's the core issue in the war that we're the knowledge of God and take captive every thought to Jesus Christ. So what are we demolishing in this war? Lies about about God. Okay? And what are the weapons that we're using? Well, another text maybe comes to my Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. So, Peter's talking about the power of God that he's given to us, that we can become partakers of the divine nature. Paul mentions the power of God, or that this has divine power. Our weapons have divine power to demolish strongholds that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. And Paul also says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. How do you put all that together? What kind of power, divine power, demolishes everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Maybe we should ask this. What kinds of things set themselves up against the knowledge of God? What are the core? If you boil it down, what are the core things? Somebody said one, lies. Satan is the father of lies, and his lies set up against the knowledge of God, right? Anything else set up against the knowledge of God? Fear. Fear and selfishness. Yes, fear and selfishness set up against the knowledge of God. And what is it that destroys lies? Truth. truth. You'll know the truth, and the truth is what is it that destroys fear and selfishness? Cast it out. Love, and the spirit is the spirit of. According to the New Testament, the spirit is the spirit of truth and love. love. And so at Pentecost, they saw two streams of fire: the fires of truth and the fires of love. This is the power. Thus, the weapons we fight with are the weapons of truth presented in love that demolish the lies and win us to trust and rid us of the fear and the self-centeredness. Are we comfortable with that? Or do we think of power as, as physical power? Power that the Jews were looking for Christ to wield to get rid of the Romans. They were looking for power, weren't they? Is that the power we think of when we think of power? The power to physically kill people, physically move mountains. Is this what we think of with power? The Bible is teaching a different type of power. Can you win people to love and trust by the exercise of physical might and threats? So Zechariah, Old Testament, not by might nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works, says the Lord. The Spirit is the Spirit of truth and love. So this is out of a book called Desire of Ages, page 759. See what you think of this. See if you agree or disagree. And is this describing the same thing we just read from Peter and Paul? God could have destroyed Satan and his sympathizers as easily as one cast a pebble to the earth. No, physical might, physical power. But he did not do this. Rebellion was not to be overcome by force. Compelling power is found only under Satan's government. The Lord's principles are not of this order. His authority rests on goodness, mercy, and love. And the presentation of these principles is the means to be used. God's government is moral, and truth and love are the prevailing power. Do you agree or disagree with that? So when you read pa- passages like we read in our, in our text here in Peter about the power of God, which we can partake of the divine nature, do you instantly think of the power of God? Do you instantly think truth and love? Or do you think more along creative energy and power to move mountains? But the power to move mountains isn't the power that's going to change your heart and mind. Yes. Just as when Christ came the first time, he was um, not well received because he did not match the expectations. The expectations for many people when Christ returns is for a God who will rule with a rod of iron. And kill his enemies. Correct. This is exactly what um, the um, ISIS state is trying. I don't know if you've looked into the theology of ISIS and why ISIS is doing, why it's doing all this terrorism, why it's doing all this war. The The theology of ISIS is that they are purposely attempting to incite a third world war because they believe that if they can incite a third world war it will force the the their messiah to come and their messiah will come with a rod of iron and kill all the infidels 
and they then win glory and they have their hereafter by an exercise of might and power killing all the people who are trying to kill them. So they're actually trying for war. You're not going to negotiate a peace here because their, their, their eschatology and theology is we must have a world war. Now, did anybody, when I've emphasized that I believe that Paul and Peter and the New Testament are talking the power of God is the gospel, the truth, the principles of truth and love, did anybody hear me suggest that God does not have infinite power, physical power? I'm not suggesting that. Don't, don't go out here and say, Jennings doesn't believe God's powerful. No, he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. It's just that physical might and power can't achieve his goal of winning people to love and trust. Can't do it with physical might and power. If he could win the war with physical might and power, then this war would have never even happened. He would have just said, get in line or I'll kill you. Third paragraph states, we are called to love God, but how can we love God we don't know? We come to know God through Jesus, through the written word. Now listen to this. This is profound, guys. Get ready for it. We come to know God through Jesus, through the written word, through the created world, and through the experience of life, of faith, and obedience. So there you have the integrative evidence-based approach that we introduced how many years ago? Six. Six years ago or more, yes. The, the three threads that we find in Scripture, uh, the written word itself, all Scripture is inspired of God, and is used for tre- teaching, training, correcting, and righteousness. God's divine nature is seen in what he has made to the men without excuse, and taste and see that the Lord is good. Experience me. Check me out. And now you've got it in the study guide. So if, just wanted to point that out for those of you who have some Seventh-day Adventist friends you might want to mark this so you can show them so, so that now it's in the study guide, they can believe it. <laughs> okay, Monday's lesson. Um, the title is Love, the Goal of Christian Virtue. Do you believe that's true? The goal is love? It's absolutely the goal. It's the changing the heart from the selfish heart to the heart of love. What does this mean then in regards of the saved in the end? Who are the ones who are translated, going into heaven, the, the amongst the sheep, not amongst the goats, you know the metaphor. Are we saved by denominational affiliation? We are not. Are we saved by method of baptism? By attestation to a creed? By legal adjustments in books in heaven? So, in fact, I'll give you an example. Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan. You have the injured man alongside the road. You have a priest. You have a Levite. And you have a Samaritan. And you know what happened. The Samaritan cares for him. Uh, says whatever, pays for his things. Says anything that he needs, you put it to my account, I'll pay for it. Self-sacrificial love, helping somebody else. In the story, who's the one that's right with God? The priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan? Samaritan. Samaritan. Do we have any evidence the Samaritan kept any Sabbaths? Any evidence he sacrificed a temple? Any evidence he ate a kosher diet? Any evidence that he dressed in the proper Jewish way? Any evidence that he paid tithe? What do we have evidence of? He had a love. That he loved others more than self. And Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples or followers by your Sabbath keeping. Your method of baptism. No, by your love. It is always going to come back down to this issue. Now, that doesn't mean some of these other things don't have a place and don't have a point. They do, but their point is working to help those of us that are out of love to come back into an experience of love. And so if those things that you believe aren't helping you come back to an experience of love, then you're misunderstanding them in some way. So then what about, uh, if you think about texts to support besides the story of the Good Samaritan, how about this text? This is Revelation 12. Verse 10 and 11, describing the people who are ready for translation. These are the people who, who don't die. They, they, they're like Elijah and Enoch. They get to go straight in. Uh, this, is, this is exciting. And here's how they're described. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now have come the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Did you hear that? So, what is salvation? What is it? Functionally, what is it? A legal adjustment or a healing and transformation of the being to be in harmony with God? It's a healing and transformation of the person, yes. And the power of truth and love are the prevailing powers that win us to trust. And when we win to trust, we open a heart. It says in Romans 5.5, he pours his love into our heart. And 
We get a new heart and right spirit. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We get circumstances of the heart by the spirit. We get the mind of Christ. We become partakers of the divine nature. Something is different in us. A whole new method of living. So who is the accuser referenced in the Revelation text? And he's been hurled down, it says. How has been hurled down? Hurled down how? What does it mean? John 12, 31 and 32, Jesus speaking. Right before his crucifixion, Jesus says these words. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all... Well, most of the translations say men to myself. However, that word men is supplied. It's not in the Greek. They supply it. The translators, that's another place. See, we talked about translations a moment ago. They insert the word men. It's not in the Greek. We'll draw all into myself. What's it say in Colossians 1, 18 and 20? That all things in heaven and in earth are reconciled to Christ at the cross. So this drawing was more than just men being drawn. Heavenly things were being drawn to Christ at the cross as well because this cosmic, this conflict over God's trustworthiness didn't begin on earth. It began in heaven with angels. Yes? I mean, uh, that provokes a thought in me. Like, the world here, we have gone astray from God. We need to be reconciled. What does it mean when you say in heavenly things have to be reconciled with God? I didn't say that. That was, that was Colossians. Paul. All things in heaven, all things in heaven and in earth are reconciled to Christ at the cross. That's a quote from Paul in Colossians 1.18 through 20. Okay? So what have to be reconciled with God in heaven? When Lucifer began his rebellion in heaven, he told lies about God. A third of the angels sided with him. Two thirds remained loyal. Does that mean the two thirds who remained loyal had all their questions answered, or they still had even though they're loyal? I've got questions. I don't understand how this is going on. Lucifer seems so perfect. How could he do this? I don't see. And so there were questions that needed to be answered still. At the cross, Satan exposed himself as the murderer. Christ revealed himself as self-sacrificial love. And this is, by the way, have you heard the statement, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely? Did Christ have absolute power? And what did he do with the power? He served others. And on the cross, did he use power to even protect himself? Or was he willing to die rather than misuse his power? And so after the resurrection, in Revelation, we read, when the heavenly court is seen, you see this repeatedly in Revelation. Worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain. He's worthy to have all power because he's the one who's proven he's the only one safe with all the power. He'll never abuse it. These questions remained outstanding until the cross. Then the evidence was provided. Now, his character was always true. Nothing changed in the character of Christ or the character of the Father. But changed was the lies that were told were exposed as lies, and the doubts that uh, loyal beings may still have had were removed. And so they've been settled beyond ever being shaken out of their loyalty again. This is how I understand it. Yes. Did you say that our hearts and minds were reconciled to truth? Yes. That's the reconciliation. Yes, for us. And so, but we need something more than the angels in heaven. The angels did not fall. They, they just had questions, but they remained loyal. They didn't have a carnal nature. They just needed truth to destroy the lies and solidify them in their loyalty. Human beings, however, needed the truth to destroy the lies to win us to trust. But we also needed a new heart and right spirit. We needed a new nature that we couldn't produce. And Christ came and became man for us to achieve what we could never achieve. And he, and he achieved a perfect humanity that he offers as a free gift to us. Yes. This also goes back to the idea, and it's very important, I think, to repeat that it was not God who was estranged. That's right. We are not bringing God back to us by Christ. Right. We are bringing us back to God. And so, so much of our theologies that have been brought up through how we've grown up with is that we're changing God by something we're doing. Yes, Exactly. So this is out of the remedy, John 12, 31 and 32. Now is the time for the infection of selfishness of sin in this world to be fully diagnosed and revealed as destructive. Now Satan, the prince of this selfish world, will be driven out into the open, out of the shadows, out from behind his lies and distortions about God and God's methods, out where all can see him as the murderer he truly is, and thus out of the hearts of all who love me. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all intelligence throughout the universe to me. And then... They saved, overcome the accuser. How? According to Revelation, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Which is what? Blood is a metaphor. A symbolic of what? Leviticus, the life is in the blood. So the life of who? The life of Christ. 
which is the perfect character of Christ, sinless righteousness, if you will, um, that the saved partake of what Peter refers to as partaking of the divine nature. And this is what Jesus meant in John 6, that we eat his flesh and drink his blood. Not literal cannibalism here, but partaking of the life of Christ, the perfection of Christ that we partake of. Thus, we overcome by believing the truth, which wins us to trust, and in trust we open the heart, invite God in because he stands at the door and knocks, and then when he opens the door, he, he comes in and steps with it. He doesn't hit your heart with a battering ram and force his way in. So we're one to trust, we open the heart, the Spirit comes and takes the perfection of Christ and reproduces it in us, so we get new motives, new desires, new ways of seeing things. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And thus we die to the survival drives. We don't seek to save our lives. We don't shrink from death anymore. We're willing to give our lives. Greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend. This is how... Uh, we know what love is, that Christ gave his life for us, and we ought to give our lives for our brothers. We have a change in, in internal motivation in how we approach the world around us. And that is a supernatural regeneration achieved by Christ, reproduced in us by the Spirit. In second paragraph in Tuesday's lesson, Peter urges her, his readers to live according to the new reality um, that is true for them in Jesus Christ. What is the new reality? That's true for them in Jesus Christ. They trust God. They trust him. That's a new reality. What else? And that trust results in some other new reality. We just talked about it. Did they have a new heart and right spirit? A new motive? A new way to see the world? A new appreciation for people around them? A new compassion on people still in sin? A, a, new, a new way of living? A new lifestyle? The old is gone. The new has come. Yeah, the new reality was an entirely new life that they were living. That comes not from the carnal, sinful, fear-based survival of the fittest drives, but from the self-sacrificial love of God being reproduced within. We see the world differently. We are not concerned anymore about getting ahead in the world. We're concerned about promoting the gospel and achieving God's agenda of winning hearts for his kingdom. And that perspective is foolishness to the world. It doesn't make sense. That doesn't make any sense at all to the people that are still living on, have to watch out for number one motives. How can you give a tithe and offering? You barely have enough money to... The widow with her two mites, remember? It's all she had. How could she possibly give that? That doesn't make any sense. She needs to hold on to that. Protect herself. But the principles of giving, the more you give, the more you... And it's not speaking only about money here. It's when you give whatever you have, you receive more love, more grace, more regeneration, more of the spirit, more of a positive attitude, more faith, more confidence, more regeneration. Wednesday's lesson, we're going to hit it real fast. The question of immortality of the soul. This is a premise. It's a premise many good Christian folks have, and they never question it. When God created Adam and Eve in Eden, in perfection, at that time, he created them with some part of their being that's immortal and can never die. Now, you won't find that anywhere in Scripture, but that's a premise that's assumed. If you assume that premise, then you have lots of consequences that come from that premise. But there's several problems with that premise. One, it doesn't make sense with certain things in Scripture, like Genesis 3, after they sinned, why, why bar the way to the tree of life if they're already mortal? Or 1 Timothy six fifteen and 16, that God alone is immortal. Or the wages of sin is death and the gift of God is eternal life. But those are, the, to me, the less significant evidences of why that's a problem. Here's the bigger ones. If God has foreknowledge, and I believe he does, and knew that Adam and Eve would sin, even though they, he created them sinless and perfect, what would it mean, what kind of a God would God be if he, knowing they were going to go ahead and sin, and then knowing they were going to have children, and knowing many of their children might only grow up to be 10 or 15 or 20 years old and, 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 and grow up in a home where they were abused and mistreated and never had a knowledge of God and, and therefore never came to a saving relation with Jesus Christ. And then those individuals will now have to suffer for all eternity of billions and billions and trillions and quadrillions of years tormented in hell. But God made them that way anyway. What kind of a God would he be? He'd be a sadistic monster. Or, well, he didn't know. He doesn't really know the future. 
And after it happened, he's like, oh, man, I missed that one. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, what what was I thinking? See, if you go that route, which some people teach he doesn't know the future, then he's not very wise. He doesn't even anticipate consequences of his own actions. And so either way, this idea of immortality of the soul, rather than immortality being a gift of God for the righteous, that somehow every human being already has immortality because it was given in Eden, really undermines our ability to trust God. God becomes somebody who's sadistic and mean-spirited and ugly, or somebody who is unwise and we can't trust. And that's the big problem with it. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you you're not unwise, and we thank you you do know the future, and you are gracious, and you are kind, and you're exactly as Jesus revealed to you to be, an incredible being, not only of immense power, but who never uses power to coerce and threaten and torment and torture, a God who's always using his power to heal, deliver, to eradicate the deviations from your design, to restore us back to perfection so we can live for you, with you, forever. We pray that you will have your way in our hearts and minds. Enlighten us. Change us. Let us be lights in this world for you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.